Church, please turn to Exodus chapter 23. The sermon text for today will be verses 20 through 33. Exodus 23, 20 through 33. And the New Testament reading will be John 14. John 14, 1 through 6. We have concluded that portion of the book of Exodus where civil laws were given to Old Covenant Israel. We come into a new portion here with a different theme. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word, Exodus 23, verses 20 through 33. Behold, I send an angel before you, the Lord says, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and to the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." You shall serve the Lord your God, and He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you, and will throw into confusion all the peoples against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Let us go now to John chapter 14 and read the words of Christ to his disciples in verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of his word this morning. As we come now to Exodus 23 and consider verses 20 through 33, it is important for us to remember what the Lord was doing with Israel when he spoke these words to them. He was making a covenant with them. The account of the making of the Old Mosaic Covenant began in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. 
And the covenant will be ratified or confirmed in Exodus 24. So then these instructions and these promises concerning the eventual conquest of the land of Canaan that we are considering today must be interpreted in that context. The Lord is still in the process of making a covenant with Old old Covenant Israel. Uh, These are instructions and promises concerning Israel's eventual possession of the land of Canaan according to the terms of the Old Mosaic Covenant. The Lord delivered this people from Egyptian bondage. Remember, they wandered in the wilderness for a time. They came to Sinai, and it is there that God is speaking to them. So we must remember that these people do not yet have a home. They are, they are sojourning in the wilderness. They are on their way to the promised land, the land of Canaan, that land to the east of the Mediterranean, to the north of Egypt. These, these are promises concerning the eventual possession of that land. These are instructions for what the people are to do when they come in to, the, to that land. In the introduction to this sermon today, I think it would be beneficial for us to explore the question, why Canaan? Why Canaan? Why the promised land? What was its purpose? What was its significance? The people of Israel will eventually take possession of this land. And the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament, more or less, is, is, is taking place in the context of the land of Canaan uh, that Israel comes to have as their own. Why Canaan? Why the promised land? What was its purpose? What was its significance? So far in the story of Exodus, we have considered how God redeemed His people from Egypt. We've also considered the laws that He gave to them at Sinai, but here we find mention of the land that God would give to His people under the Old Covenant. Sometimes we fail to ask this question. We just take Canaan for granted, as if it is just a common place. It it was nothing more, let's say, for the people of Israel, nothing more than for the people of Israel to, to dwell in. I think there is much more significance to the land of Canaan, and I do wish to begin to explore that with you this morning. To get to that answer, I will ask another question. Where did this old Mosaic covenant come from? I think answering this question first will help us to get to the other one. On the most basic level, we can say that it came from God. This old Mosaic covenant and the terms of it came from God. He revealed the terms of the old covenant to Israel. And I suppose we might also say that the old Mosaic covenant came from the eternal decree of God. Both of these observations are true. But here I wish to remind you that the old Mosaic covenant did not spring up spontaneously and out of nowhere. Instead, we must see that this old Mosaic covenant, which is here being made with Israel, was the outgrowth or development of previous promises and previous covenants that God made with man. And I hope that you do not grow weary of me talking about these covenants, brothers and sisters. Understanding these covenants which God has made with man and their relationship to each other is truly crucial for us uh, to have a proper understanding of the Scriptures and of the story of God's dealing with man in the history of redemption. Uh, Stated differently, understanding these covenants which God has made with man and their relationship to each other is crucial to a proper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of our salvation in Him. I've asked the question, where did this old Mosaic Covenant come from? Because I do believe that answering this question will help us to understand the true importance and significance of this covenant in general, all of its terms and conditions, 
and of the land of Canaan, which our passage speaks of today in particular. Why the land of Canaan? Why was Israel to take possession of it? Why were they to drive the inhabitants out and destroy their idols? What was the significance of this land? If we hope to know, we must consider Canaan in light of the covenants and promises of God previously made. Though it is true that God revealed the terms and conditions of the Old Covenant to Israel, and though it is true that the Old Covenant did stand on its own two feet, as it were, once it was ratified, here I am reminding you that it came in fulfillment to the promises of God previously made. It was a development of a covenant previously transacted. In other words, there is a backstory to the Old Mosaic Covenant. And the backstory is found in Genesis chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 18. That backstory is immensely important. As we seek an answer to the question, why Canaan? And to understand the significance of that land, I want to remind you of the backstory. And in particular, I wish to hone in upon one specific theme. The theme is mentioned in our passage today. In Exodus 23.20 we read, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Did you hear that language? Going to, to lead you through this angel into the place that I have prepared for you, the Lord said to Israel. The promised land of Canaan is here referred to as the place that God had prepared for Israel. There are many themes that run throughout the history of redemption, that tie the story of Scripture together. And this morning I wish to especially draw your attention to the theme of a place prepared for God's people. When we speak of God preparing a place for man, I might ask you, what is the first thing that comes to mind? I would hope that the very first thing that comes to your mind is God's creation of the heavens and earth in general, and the garden which God made for man in particular. If I speak of a place prepared by God for His people, I think that is the very first place that should come to our minds, especially if we are thinking chronologically. When God created the heavens and earth, He did so in the span of six days. On day one, the heavens and earth were created out of nothing. And at first, they were without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. That was a problem. That was a problem because the earthly realm when it was first made on day one, was not suitable for human habitation. There was no place for man to dwell. And then from there the story of creation continues as God forms and fashions the world to make it into a place suitable for human habitation. And after this, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do you see the theme? When God created the heavens and the earth, He made the earthly realm a place suitable for human habitation. And in particular, He made a garden for man to dwell in. If we wish to understand the question, why Canaan? Then we cannot forget about this theme. The story of man begins with this theme. God prepared a place for man to live. And what was that place for? Well, many things can be said regarding its purpose. But the thing that I wish to emphasize this morning is that it was a place for man to enjoy communion with God. 
Man was to commune with God there in that garden paradise. Man was to enjoy God. He was to worship and serve Him forever. I've said this before, and I think it is important that I remind you of this now. The Garden of Eden was a kind of temple. And when I say that it was a temple, I do not mean that there was a physical temple constructed within Eden, but that Eden itself was a natural temple created by God Himself. There in that garden paradise, man walked with God. Man enjoyed sweet communion with Him, worshipped and served Him. That is what temples are for, friends. And that's what Eden was, a temple made by God Himself wherein man could enjoy sweet communion with his Maker. And what was Adam's job under the covenant of creation except this, to keep that place pure while expanding its borders to the furthest reaches of the earth? And then I might ask you this, what happened when man fell into sin? What happened when man fell into sin? Well, as it pertains to the theme of a place prepared by God for His people, Adam, Eve, and their offspring were cast out of Eden. They did not have offspring yet, but they would. And those offspring would be born outside of Eden. They were banished from that place. Genesis 3, 23-24 reads, The Lord God sent Adam out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I trust that you are able to see why I have taken you back to Eden and to the story of Genesis 2 and 3 in the introduction to this sermon on Exodus 23. I want to be sure that we connect the dots. This place that the Lord prepared for Israel in Canaan had something to do with the place that the Lord prepared for Adam, Eve, and all their posterity in the beginning. You see, though it is true that Adam and Eve were banished from Eden, from the presence of God and from access to the tree of life, it is also true that the Lord promised to send a Savior who would defeat the evil one who tempted Adam and Eve. The promise concerning a Savior was uttered by God for the first time in the presence of Adam and Eve as God pronounced the curse upon the serpent. The promise of the gospel that was declared on that day was very simple. Someday, someone would be born who would destroy Satan and his works. Adam and Eve and all who received this good news after them must have wondered when this Savior would be born, what he would be like, and what exactly he would do to defeat the evil one and to free men and women from their bondage to sin. There was so much that was mysterious about the gospel in those days. Nevertheless, those who heard it had enough of the good news They had enough of the good news to trust in God and in His promise. And they must have known that whoever this Savior was, whenever He would be born, and whatever He would do to accomplish our redemption, He would do something to restore that which was lost through Adam's sin, and to lay a hold of that which was offered to Adam in the covenant of creation, which Adam failed to reach. Eternal life was offered to Adam. He failed to reach it. The Savior would obtain it through his obedience. And what is eternal life except this? God's holy people enjoying sweet communion with him forever and ever in the holy place which he has prepared for them. That is is the theme that was established in the very beginning of Scripture. 
There we hear about creation in the garden. There we see man enjoying communion with the Lord. There we see that Adam was offered something greater than what he had. That is, life eternal, life consummate in the presence of of God. Brothers and sisters, please know this. When Adam fell into sin, he did not only lose his personal righteousness, nor did he only lose the communion with God that he once enjoyed, he also lost the place wherein that sweet communion with God was first enjoyed. He lost the place, too. He was banished from that garden paradise which God had made for him. And when Adam fell into sin, and all of humanity with him, we are to see this, that he was banished from this place, and the whole of the earthly realm was subjected then to futility. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8, 18-25. You may read that passage for yourself sometime. But there he talks about how all of creation was subjected to futility in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The point that I am trying to make is this. Jesus Christ the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, did not only defeat the evil one, nor did He only redeem for Himself a people. He did also redeem the created realm so that His holy people would have a holy place wherein they will enjoy sweet communion with the holy God for all eternity. This is a crucial part of the work of Christ. Not only to redeem you and I personally, not only to redeem the elect of God as individuals, but to redeem a people for Himself and to, and to earn for Himself and for all who belong to Him the new heavens and new earth, that place in which we will worship and serve God for all eternity when He, when he returns. If, if you wish to know what this place will be like, you may go to the vision of Revelation chapter 21 where John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen to this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So here we have that theme brought to its fullness. Here we have that theme of a place prepared by God for His people uh, brought to its climax. We see this vision of the new heavens and new earth in Revelation chapter 21. This is the place that Adam was to enter into through his obedience and his eating of the tree of life. This is the place that Jesus Christ has earned. And it is the place of which He spoke when He said to His disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself, that where I am you may be also. This is the place of which Christ spoke, the new heavens and new earth. John was shown a glimpse of it. And we have 
uh, that revelation given to us. This is the place that was promised to Abraham when he looked forward with eyes of faith. Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 tells us that this is what Abraham looked forward to. There we read, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Well, what place is this except Canaan? The land that was promised to Abraham is the same land that his descendants would one day enter into after having been redeemed from Egyptian bondage. We're considering that now. But as I continue to read in Hebrews 12, uh, we get the point. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Abraham went out knowing that one day he, uh, through his descendants, would take possession of that that sliver of land in Palestine, the land of, of Canaan. He knew that, but with eyes of faith, he knew that it meant more than just that. It meant a new heavens and new earth. It meant that one day the Lord would, would undo that work that the evil one did. That one day the Lord would bring into existence the thing that Adam failed to obtain. We, we know this is true as we consider the book of Hebrews carefully and trace this theme. Hebrews 12.22 and 13.14 helps us to understand that this city that Abraham was looking forward to was not an earthly city, not a common one, but instead it was the new heavens and new earth. So now we return to the question, what was Canaan? What was the significance of the land that was promised and then given to Old Covenant Israel. What was this place all about? If we are following along with the story, and here I am referring to the story of Scripture, three things become apparent. One, the land of Canaan had something to do with the Garden of Eden. It had something to do with the Garden of Eden. The place of Canaan had something to do with the place that God made in the beginning for man to dwell in. Perhaps we can refer to Canaan as a replica of Eden. And as a replica of Eden, it would have served as a reminder of what man lost by his fall into sin. And also it would have served as a reminder of the gracious promise of God to send a Savior. The fact that God had prepared the place of Canaan for His redeemed people, earthly speaking was a demonstration that God was doing what He had promised to do. He was in the process of doing it. Adam forfeited something. Adam was banished from Eden. Uh, He was to lay a hold of life consummate in, in an earth filled with the glory of God. He failed to do it, but now God, piece by piece, was accomplishing what Adam had failed to do. God, piece by piece, was providing redemption and bringing salvation and moving human history towards its designed end. That is, God's people living with Him forever and ever in a holy place, the new heavens and new earth. The land of Canaan pointed backwards to Eden. It reminded us of what was lost. It reminded us of the promise of God uh, that He would provide a Savior too. It is also apparent that the land of Canaan was not Eden. It was a replica of it, perhaps. It was a kind of a, kind of a, 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 a reminder of, of, of Eden, but it was not Eden. I, I hardly need to elaborate on this point. It would suffice for me to say that sin, sickness, and death still plagued that land, despite its uniqueness. 
3. When all is considered, we must also confess that the land of Canaan had something to do with the end goal of God's redemptive purposes. Canaan was the place where the Hebrews would be preserved until the Messiah was brought into the world through them. And this place was filled with symbolism. In fact, there in that place the eternal kingdom of God was typified or prefigured. The land of Canaan, its temple, its priesthood, its sacrifices, festivals, and succession of kings were shadows of Christ and of His eternal and everlasting kingdom cast backward into history. In other words, the land of Israel did not only point back to Eden, it also pointed forward to the Christ and to the new heavens and earth which He would earn by His obedient life, His sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection. This land of Canaan that was promised to the Hebrews, that they would eventually take possession of, not in the days of Moses, but in the days of Joshua, was not a common land. It was a holy land. It had a special purpose. It had, it had deep significance pertaining to God's redemptive purposes. It, it reminded the people of Israel and all who looked upon them of the past of Eden and what was lost, but it also had this way of pointing forward to the future while even serving a present function, that is, to give the people of Israel a place to live until the Messiah should be brought into the world through them. And while they lived there, the kingdom of God was prefigured. The, pre- the kingdom of God was manifest. You know, brothers and sisters, I, I, I'm doing this now and I'm belaboring this point, trying to get you to think on this, this plane, on this level, because soon in the book of Exodus, we're going to spend a long time hearing about the instructions that were given to Israel concerning the construction of the tabernacle. And this way of thinking is going to be so very important as we consider the construction the design, the features of that tabernacle. We are going to see that that tabernacle was itself a replica of Eden. It was a replica of all the earth. It pointed forward to the new heavens and new earth which Christ would return, would, would earn and bring us into uh, through, through the sacrifice of Himself. Uh, we have to learn to think about the Old Covenant about the land of Canaan, about the temple indeed, about Israel as a nation in these terms. A holy nation through whom God was working in order to bring redemption to all the nations of the earth. We must learn to think in this way. You know, it is actually troubling to me how so many Christians today obsess over the land of Israel while failing to ask what its purpose was from the beginning. Many seem to view the land that was given to Old Covenant Israel as if it were the end goal. They ignore what the New Testament says about the land of Israel, the people of Israel, the covenant which God made with Israel in the days of Moses. Israel functioned as a conduit through which the Messiah was brought into the world. And under the Old Covenant they did also symbolize, typify, and foreshadow the everlasting kingdom that the Messiah would inaugurate at His first coming and consummate at His second coming when He brings His people safely home into the place that He has prepared for them. Not Canaan, but the new heavens and new earth. Canaan was never the end goal, brothers and sisters. 
Canaan was a conduit. Israel was a conduit. Through them the Messiah came. And by the Messiah's obedient life, through His sacrifice, He has made a way for us to enter into, not Canaan again, not even Eden again, but the thing which Eden was to become, namely, the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, do not tremble when I say this. All of that was an introduction to our text for today. But soon you will see that this prolonged introduction will make it much easier for us to properly understand and fully appreciate this passage. For in this passage we see the work of Christ to bring His redeemed ones home into the new heavens and new earth typified. We'll move rather quickly through this passage. Look with me now at 2320. There God says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you into the place that I have prepared. I've already drawn your attention to the theme of a place prepared by God for His people. Now I wish to draw your attention to the angel that is mentioned. Who is this angel? Who is this messenger? Let us continue to read in verse 21 before answering that question. Pay careful attention to him, that is, to this angel, and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, there are different theories regarding the identity of this angel. Uh, Some, I think the Jewish rabbis in particular, say that it was Joshua the one who would lead Israel into the promised land after Moses' death. I think that theory is problematic, for Joshua does not come until much later. Others think that this was an ordinary angel, but in my opinion, when all is considered, this angel was the second person of the triune God, the pre-incarnate Christ. This is the angel of the Lord. Notice that the people of Israel were called to obey this angel. The text says that he had the authority to pardon and to judge sin. The name of God is said to have been in him. Above all, we should consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.9. He's speaking of that time when Israel rebelled against God in the wilderness. Paul says that they put Christ to the test in 1 Corinthians 10.9. It seems to me that Paul's interpretation of this passage When he considered the angel that is mentioned here, he considered this angel to be Christ. When when the people of Israel sinned against God in the wilderness, when they rebelled against God, they were putting Christ to the test. Christ was present with them. And so I say that this angel was the pre-incarnate Christ. This angel, the pre-incarnate Christ, was sent by the Lord to guard Israel on the way, And to bring them into the place that He had prepared for them. That storyline should sound familiar to you. That theme should sound familiar to you. Is this not what Christ has done in a greater way in the Incarnation? After redeeming His elect from bondage to Satan, from sin, and from the fear of death by His obedience on the cross. He has gone before His people. He has promised to guard them on the way and to bring them into the place He has prepared for them, that is to say, the new heavens and new earth. Do you see how what God did for Israel in the days of Moses, how it was a kind of trial run of the thing that Christ would do in His incarnation? 
how this experience of Old Covenant Israel was an earthly, temporal, and conditional foreshadowing of the heavenly, eternal, and unconditional salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. The work of Christ was prefigured there in the days of Moses, in their being redeemed from Egypt, in their being led through the wilderness, in their being brought into the promised land. It's a prefigurement of Christ. Who led them into the promised land? Who redeemed them from Egypt? It was Christ who did. The pre-incarnate Christ who did. God Himself, the second person of the triune God, is the one who was with Israel there. I think that is the proper interpretation of, of this text. Look now at verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces." These pillars were idols, places of worship. Here it is promised that all idolaters would be blotted out, and here it is commanded that all idolatry was to cease in the land of Canaan. Canaan was to be a place free from all idolatry. And here I am saying that the new heavens and earth will be a place from, free from all idolatry. And Canaan was to be a foretaste of this new creation. Verse 25 says, You shall serve the Lord your God. The Lord alone was to be worshipped and served in Canaan. And in the new heavens and earth, the Lord will be worshipped and served alone. Here I am saying that the former was a picture of the latter. Concerning the new heavens and earth, Revelation 21-22 says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I love that verse there. Uh, There's not going to be a physical temple constructed in the middle of the new heavens and earth, um, but rather the new heavens and earth will all be temple. God will be the temple. We will dwell in Him and in His presence, in the presence of His glory, uh, day and night. In fact, the text goes on to say, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That phrase, nothing unclean will ever enter it, should remind us of Eden and the fact that nothing unclean was to enter into Eden, Adam was to guard that place, but he failed. It should remind us also of Canaan. Nothing unclean was to enter into it. All idolatry was to be blotted out. The Lord was to be worshipped and served there alone. It should remind us of the temple that was in the midst of, of Israel as well. What were the priests to do except keep the temple pure? Just as Adam was to keep his temple pure, so too the priests of the Old Covenant were to keep the temple pure. Nothing unclean was to enter into it. And here I am saying that these were all prefigurements of the new heavens and new earth. Did unclean things enter into Israel, that is into Canaan? Certainly. Certainly. What about the temple? Yes, the temple was also defiled. So there was failure here. The 
people of God failed, just like Adam, to do what God had called them to do. Nevertheless, we must see that Israel and Canaan and the temple were pictures of the work that God would do to bring salvation to His elect and to bring them home into the new heavens and new earth. In verse 25, we continue reading, You shall serve the, excuse me, you shall serve the Lord your God. Um, I continue now. And He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness from among you, the Lord says. None shall miscarry nor be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I want you to notice three brief things about these verses here. Uh, One, the old Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant of works. Israel would be blessed in the land if they were faithful to serve the Lord. This differs from the terms of the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace. The blessings of this covenant, that is the covenant of grace, are freely given, for they were purchased by Christ. Two, the blessings promised to Israel were earthly blessings. If you obey me, if you serve me faithfully, then I'm going to bless you, the Lord said to old covenant Israel. But these were earthly blessings pertaining to things like bread and water, health, fruitfulness, and a long life. The blessings of the new covenant are spiritual and eternal. Three, the blessings promised for obedience under the old covenant were idealistic. There's something about this passage, right? The Lord is saying to uh, the Hebrews, if you will worship and serve me alone, if you will obey me, you're going to flourish in this land. No one will be sick. No women will miscarry. You'll be fruitful. You'll never lack bread or water. I'm not saying that the Lord was lying about this, but there's a conditional element here. If you will obey me, what's the problem? Not the Lord's promise, not the Lord's ability to provide or to come through on His His word. What's the problem? (laughs) The problem is the people. The people are still sinners. We're going to eventually uh, move through this whole episode where the Lord speaks to Israel through Moses on Sinai and Moses comes down the mountain and what does he find the people doing? Before he even gets down the mountain, he hears the sound of it. They're worshiping a golden calf. The people were idolaters still. They were sinful. And so, uh, these promises of blessing that the Lord gives are, are idealistic. They're true promises, yes, but I think they're meant to, to prepare us for the arrival of the Christ. They're meant to prepare us for His perfect obedience. The fact that He would worship and serve the Lord alone and would come to do the Father's will and would not falter in the least bit. These promises concerning no sickness. These promises concerning no barrenness or miscarriage. No lack of bread and water are meant to prepare us for the work that Christ would do and the reward that He would earn. Again, I say, these promises are meant to to help us, and I think they helped Israel in this way too, to see that these promises landed in something even greater than Old Covenant Israel in the land of Canaan there. The new heavens and new earth, I think, are, are brought into our minds as we consider these idealistic promises. It will be in the new heavens and earth that the dwelling place of God will be with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. It will be there in that place that He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. 
This will all come to its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth, which Jesus Christ, the second Adam, and the greater Moses has earned for us. The second Joshua too, by the way. Lastly, let us consider verses 27 through 33. Here we learn that in Canaan, God would defeat all of His enemies. I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites, the Hittites, from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness of, to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will be a snare to you. Again I say, in Canaan, and under the old covenant, this was true in an earthly and temporal sense. God would drive the enemies of Israel out of the land. It was an earthly thing that would be accomplished. In the new heavens and earth, and through Christ, this will be true in a spiritual and eternal sense. Revelation 21.7 the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, when the Lord brought Israel into Canaan, uh, the people of that land who were idolaters were driven out. It was a kind of Prefigurement of the final judgment, therefore. The land was purged, in part, in an earthly and temporal way. The land was purged of the wicked who dwelt within it. And I'm saying that that is a picture of what Christ will do when He brings us into the new heavens and new earth. That land will be purged purely and completely for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, let me close with a few brief suggestions for application. First of all, I wish to exhort you, brothers and sisters, to learn to read the Bible in a Christian way. Learn to read the Bible in a Christian way. That might sound like a strange point of application, but I'm afraid that many Christians have in fact failed to read the Bible in a Christian way. When they pick up the Old Testament, I'm afraid that many Christians read the Bible in an unbelieving and Jewish way. Are you following with me? We, meet, we need to learn uh, to read the Bible according to the principle that all of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms find their fulfillment in Christ. They find their fulfillment in Christ. We need to take that that principle, seriously. We did not invent that principle. It was Christ who taught His disciples on the Emmaus Road and later in Jerusalem after His resurrection to read the Scriptures in this way. All of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. So as we read the Old Testament Scriptures, we must learn to read them in a Christian way, that is to say, in a Christ-centered way. 
So many Christians do obsess over Israel and the land of Israel even presently. It's a problem, brothers and sisters. It's a major problem. Many Christians are very eager to see the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. And it's such a strange thing. Such a strange desire for a Christian to have. I wonder if you could identify the heir. They have treated the land of Israel, Canaan. They have treated the temple that dwells, that, that was built in the midst of it, as if they were the end goal. They have failed to see that these were conduits through whom the Messiah would be brought into the world. You see the difference, I hope. They act as if the old covenant was the, the goal. The old covenant would be permanent. No, the old covenant has given away to the new covenant. The old covenant itself looked forward to the arrival of the new. You know, I was speaking to a non-believer, um, and this non-believer, this, this, this woman made a little comment. I, I just wish that they wouldn't call uh, the, the old covenant the old covenant and the new covenant the new covenant. I think what she was saying is that it sounds arrogant, you know, as if Christians stood up one day and said, you know... Let's call our thing the new thing, and let's call their thing, the thing in the past, the old thing. Uh, our, theirs is old and irrelevant. Ours is new and pertinent. I, I think that's where she was coming from. I thought that's an interesting observation. Um, but what we need to recognize is that the Old Covenant itself, the Old Testament Scriptures themselves, spoke of something greater in the future. You may go to Jeremiah chapter 31 and 31 in verse 31 and see that, that the old covenant prophets told the people something new is coming. A new covenant is coming, you know. Uh, this is not something that the Christians invented so as to, to um, promote their religion over the religion of Judaism. No, quite to the contrary, true Judaism, true, a true understanding of the Old Testament scriptures uh, would be eager to to have the Old Covenant give way to the new. A true understanding of the Old Covenant sees that Christ is promised and prefigured here and that, and that what the people of Israel experienced in those Old Covenant times was to develop into something bigger and better and greater, something that would indeed fill the earth, you see. It's this strange obsession that Christians today have with, with, with the land of Israel and, and with that temple and with the old covenant as if it were the end goal it was never the end goal never, never, never from the days of Abraham onward even Abraham looked forward to something greater that is to the city that has its foundations and builder is God the new heavens and the new earth I say we need to learn more and more to read the Bible in a Christian way to see Christ in the Old Testament, so that we might grow in our understanding of who He was, what He came to do, so that we might grow in our love for Him and in our appreciation for the salvation that is ours in Him. And as we consider the Old Testament Scriptures and the Old Covenant of which they speak, I urge you, secondly, by way of application, to learn to see and savor Christ there. To see Him as the fulfillment of these things. When we look back into the Old Testament Scriptures and we see Christ there, we should have a, a greater understanding of what it is that He has accomplished for us. We should see Christ there and we should savor Him. It's like when I brought the children up earlier to teach them that Christ uh, fulfilled the office of a prophet. You know, we, we see the ministry of the prophets in the Old Covenant. They, they prefigured, though, the the ministry of the greatest of the prophets, Christ the Lord, the eternal Word of God, come in the flesh, so we might 
appreciate more fully what Christ has done for us as we consider the Old Covenant prophets and the work that they have done. The third suggestion for application is this. As we sojourn now in this world as strangers and exiles, let us long for and live for the promised land. That is to say, the new heavens and earth. Have you thought of this? How important it is to have a place to dwell. Sometimes we just don't even give thought to it because we're comfortable in our places. But human beings, if they are to survive, if they are to flourish, they need a place to dwell. We need a dwelling place. We are human beings, body and soul. We need a place to live. And I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that that not only has the Lord provided you with a place to live now, a home, a residence, a place to be sheltered from the elements, but Christ has secured for you a place to live for all eternity in the presence of God. What a gift this is. Don't you long to be brought into that place, brothers and sisters? When you hear the words of Christ as He spoke to His disciples in John chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house there are are many rooms. And I go and I prepare a place for you. You could almost see the disciples of Christ looking at Him in that moment with longing in their eyes. Here they are sojourning and suffering in this world. And they would suffer even greater things after the Lord ascended to the right hand of the Father. But you could see them sitting there at at, at Christ's feet, listening to His word with, with a kind of longing in their eyes. We cannot wait to be brought in to the Father's house. We cannot wait to enter the doors of His mansion with many rooms. We cannot wait to enter into that place that you are going to prepare for us, O Lord the new heavens, the new earth in which nothing but righteousness dwells, the glory of God fills all. There we will enjoy sweet communion with Him forever and ever. This is what He created us for, brothers and sisters. Let us long for that day. Let us live for that day. Would you bow with me now for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank You for Christ, crucified and risen. We thank You for all that He has accomplished and for all of the benefits that come to us through faith in Him. We thank You for for the forgiveness of sins. We thank You for the freedom from the kingdom of darkness and the citizenship now in the kingdom of the Son. We thank You, O God, for the adoption of sons and daughters, the benefits that have come to us through Christ are so many. They are grand. They are marvelous. We thank you also that Christ has redeemed creation, that he has earned for himself and for all who are in him the new heavens and new earth. We thank you for the hope that we have that we will be brought safely into this place when Christ returns. In his name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.